Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And leading today, we're going to talk about, well, a gradual consensus is being created between the FDA, the CDC, and the Biden administration about the booster shot. So in other words, should you or should you not get a booster and when? There seems to be a growing consensus after a week of, well, confusion as to what the guidelines really are like. And new data. It turns out that now that people have been vaccinated in many areas, there's enough data to give you a definitive statement about how effective the vaccinations are and whether or not we have to compare that with the side effects, the side effects of the vaccination. So we'll say a few things about that. By the way, we should also point out that one of the side effects of getting the coronavirus is death. And then, if you are a fan of science fiction, you know that this week there's going to be debut for the first time in history of a television serialized version of one of the greatest science fiction novels of all time, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. In fact, I read the series when I was a child, and it really opened up my eyes to the whole potential of being a galactic civilization. In fact, we'll talk about Elon Musk. He also read that book when he was a kid, and he was inspired to make a goal for humanity. Humanity's goal should be to become a multi-planet species, just like in the movie Foundation. So we'll pick apart the premise and the ideas in perhaps the greatest science fiction novel ever written, the Foundation Trilogy. And then let's say a, say a few things about a mystery concerning the origin of the Polynesians. Anyone who's ever visited Polynesia remarks about the fact that there are so many islands there, they're so far apart, how is it possible that the Polynesians could have settled in such a diverse area, which occupies about one-third of the surface area of the planet Earth. How is that possible? And then there's the mystery of Easter Island, where we have these huge, gigantic statues looking like aliens pointed at the heavens. And many people, of course, suspect that, well, maybe the flying saucer people, aliens from outer space, they were the ones who built the monuments at Easter Island. But we'll say a few things about science and what DNA research, what archaeology, and what, the, what linguistics has shown about where the Polynesians came from anyway. And then, let's say a few things about the Americas. Textbooks usually say that at the end of the last ice age, 10,000 years ago, that's when people from Asia were able to cross over the land bridge going from, uh, let's say, Russia into Alaska, into Canada, and then to colonize the Americas. However, there's a new, a new discovery that throws a monkey wrench in that whole theory. This new theory shows that perhaps 21 to 23,000 years ago, that's when the first known human migrations took place from Asia to 
the Americas. And that changes the whole perspective on exactly what happened at the end of the last ice age. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The top story of the past week concerns, well, a gradual consensus emerging between the FDA, the CDC, the Biden administration concerning booster shots and concerning how far we should push the vaccination process. Well, it turns out the FDA, the CDC, and the Biden administration all had slightly different goals, but now they seem to be coalescing. President Joe Biden said it very frankly, and that is, if you already have taken the Pfizer shot, then if you took it in January, February of March of this year, and you're over 65 years of age, then by all means, get vaccinated. And so we're now getting a consensus that yes, a vaccination push is coming along, especially for those people over 65 years of age and people who got vaccinated not eight months ago, but six months ago. And as time goes by, we'll start to vaccinate people even below the age of 65, people that have been vaccinated with the Moderna or the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. In other words, there's going to be a huge push for booster shots. Now, remember that we already get booster shots when we take flu shots. The flu virus mutates. And because it mutates, the virus that infected you one year is not necessarily the same virus that infects you the following year, as it mutates. And in fact, the famous 1918 Spanish flu virus that killed more people in 1918 than World War I. Where did that virus go? Some epidemiologists say that one of the greatest killers in the history of the human race, the Spanish flu virus of 1918, didn't go away at all. It's still here, except it's mutated because we more or less reached herd immunity. There were no more people to infect, and so the virus had to mutate. Either mutated itself out of existence or mutated so it became relatively harmless so that it could perpetuate its life cycle over and over again. Well, some people think that could be the ultimate fate of the coronavirus. In other words, it'll always be here but in mutated form. Now, so far, the mutated form is in the opposite directions. The Delta variety right now is much more infectious than the Alpha variety, which in turn is much more infectious than the original coronavirus. So, in other words, people should get vaccinated. Now, it turns out that perhaps the number one reason for people's hesitancy about getting vaccinated is because of fear of side effects. They think that we don't know that much about the side effects created by the vaccination. Well, in some sense, there's some truth to that. After all, the vaccine itself is relatively new, only a, several months to a year old. But compare it. Compare it to the side effects of the coronavirus. The side effects of the coronavirus is possibly death, hospitalization and death. However, the side effects coming from vaccination are relatively minor. People get a little bit of nausea, and some people have, of course, come down with the virus itself, but a remarkably small number of people. The Pfizer vaccine is 95% effective. 
the Moderna vaccine is 94% effective. Now, the effectiveness drops to around 85 to 80% effective after the first year or so. And that's why doctors are saying, well, it's good to have a booster shot. And also new results from Singapore. On, on this program, we've had a number of programs about the fact that the virus probably does not spread through a simple cough or a sneeze. The virus spreads through aerosols, that is, tiny particles that are microns in size that float in the air for hours, maybe even days at a time. New results from Singapore show that, yes, the aerosolization of the virus is probably the dominant, probably the dominant way in which it spreads. Remember the early days? People said, wipe down anything you touch. Anything you touch is contaminated. Wipe it down. Six feet, yes, separate yourself by six feet. Went on and on and on. Now we realize that in some sense, we missed the boat. According to the results coming from Singapore, the latest results seems to indicate that the virus mainly spreads through aerosolization. Aerosolization of particles so tiny they float. They float in the air for hours, maybe even days at a time. If you want to see the effect of aerosolization, just get some perfume. Spray some perfume in your room and you can see for yourself how far it spreads. And so new results from Singapore give us now data that shows that in some sense we were barking up the wrong tree. It's the aerosolization, which means that watch out if you talk to somebody who's infected for a long period of time. Just talking spreads the aerosols from your saliva and mouth into the air where it could last for hours at a time. Now, the Singapore study also looked at masks. And they showed that even loose-fitting masks can reduce the aerosol count by about 50%. So in other words, a word to the rise. And that is, if possible, stay away from enclosed areas. If you talk to people who are loud, go outside. But if you're inside, like in a church, watch out if you're too close to somebody who is talking too loud, somebody who's singing, chanting, or whatever, because that is the principal way, we think, in which the virus spreads. Now, I'd like to say a few things about science fiction. Some people ask me, well, maybe I'm not a science fiction fan, but if there's one book, if there's one novel that you would recommend, what not science fiction novel would that be? Well, I think hands down, that novel would be The Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov. I read that book when I was a teenager and it changed my world outlook. Before then, science fiction was just shoot 'em up, cowboys and Indians in outer space. In other words, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, fighting bug-eyed monsters. But then, when you read the Foundation series, it opens your mind to the possibility of a galactic civilization, maybe 50,000 years into the future. At that point, you are even pushing the laws of physics. One of the laws of physics says you cannot break the light barrier, which means you cannot even create a galactic civilization. But if you have the energy, the power of what is called a type 3 civilization, that is a civilization that can harness the Planck energy, the energy of black holes, the energy of big bangs, then new law of physics opens up. 
I should also point out that another youngster who read the Foundation series was Elon Musk. And he was apparently so energized by that and other books that he decided to make this a vision, a vision for his life. And that is his destiny is to partake of the creation of a multi-planet species. In other words, it's simply too dangerous to put all life on the earth, spread it throughout the galaxy. And that's been a theme of Elon Musk's work. That's why he's always one to two steps ahead of the competition. The competition still thinks in terms of, well, beat the Russians and put a few things into outer space and put a flag there. No, that's not the vision being proposed by Elon Musk. Now, let me summarize briefly the plot line of the Foundation series and why is it that after so many decades, it finally is going to the little screen? Well, let me say a few things about the theme of the book. The theme of the book is more or less based on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And that is, there is a galactic empire. Humanity is now spread over billions of worlds. The world population is measured in trillions of individuals, so many that computer programs can more or less accurately predict certain features of the future and human nature. Well, there's a mathematician called Harry Seldon, who is the main pushing the main theme of the book, he creates a new science called psychohistory, where a computer program, a very advanced computer program, looking at the trillions of humans that scatter throughout the Milky Way galaxy, that you can reduce their behavior to mathematical formulas and calculate, on average, the future. That's right. And when he runs the computer program, he finds that, well, like the Roman Empire of old, the galactic empire is going to collapse. Signs of it are very hard to see, but mathematics shows that the galactic empire will fall apart. And it'll fall apart for 30,000 years. 30,000 years of chaos. And then he says, I have to do something. My computer program shows that if I create a foundation, that is a small group of scientists who can use the laws of science to change some of the parameters of the future, then the 30,000 years of chaos can be reduced to 1,000 years. Well, as you can imagine, the powers that be hate this guy. They want to kill him uh, because, of course, he's claiming to be able to predict the future, a future of chaos, a future where the galactic empire falls apart for 30,000 years. Well, this novel is incredible. It traces the history of the galaxy over thousands of years. You can imagine how many people are portrayed in that book because of the enormous scope of the Foundation series. In fact, there are actually two foundations. The first foundation is the foundation that uses science, science to revitalize a dying empire. But then there's a second foundation that uses mental wizardry, telepathy, psychokinesis in order to influence the history. And then there's a wild card in all of this as well to really mix things up. It turns out that these equations do not predict a random mutation that creates a true telepath, a telepath of enormous power, able to manipulate minds over light years of distance called the mule. 
And so he practically tears apart all the plans of Harry Seldon. Well, I don't want to give the plot away. It's on Apple TV, and it's a novel that many people thought could never be put on the small screen. It's, the novel is so expansive, spanning thousands of years of galactic history, that many people would shake their heads and say, this novel is too great, too ambitious, too awe-inspiring to be put on the little screen. Because on TV, you have to have sex, you have to have violence, you have to have personal stories, things that can bring this gigantic story down to earth. Well, we'll see what happens. Because, of course, the creators of the new Asimov Foundation series had to take some liberties. Well, I don't know what these liberties are. I haven't seen the series, but cross your fingers and let's hope that he's true to the original theme of the Foundation. That is, painting a picture of what a galactic civilization could look like. And again, this novel affected not just a few people. It affected many fans of science fiction who went on to become billionaires like Elon Musk, to give a vision, a vision for the space program, to become a multi-planet species. I should also point out that this differs from the ordinary science fiction motif. Science fiction, believe it or not, especially TV science fiction, is based on the westerns, the TV westerns. For example, there used to be a TV program called Wagon Train. Wagon Train, you have a bunch of hardy pioneers going through unknown dangerous territory in a wagon train. Well, Gene Roddenberry said, well, why don't we take Wagon Train and put it in outer space? And that became Star Trek. So Star Trek is nothing but a wagon train to the stars instead of a bunch of Westerners and cowboys and Indians. No, we're talking about putting wagon train into outer space. And then what about something like Tombstone, Arizona, where you have a hotbed of gunslingers called Tombstone in Arizona, where they have shootouts. Well, that became the basis of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Star Trek Deep Space Nine is basically Tombstone, Arizona, put into outer space. So that's the problem with science fiction. Science fiction is too derivative. It's too ordinary. It devolves into simply shooting them up gun battles. Now, I have nothing against shoot em up gun gunfights because, of course, they can be quite exciting. All I'm saying is if that's all you do, then you miss the opportunity of giving a new vision, a new vision for the future of humanity itself. And speaking about humanity, let me tell you a little bit about a mystery that has puzzled anthropologists for centuries. And that is, where did the Polynesians come from? If you take a map of the earth and you see how far the Polynesians spread, you realize that they spread over about a third of the surface of the planet earth. How did they do that? Why did they do that? When did they do that? And then there's the mystery of Easter Island. You've probably seen pictures of these gigantic heads, these elongated heads made out of stone that dot Easter Island. What are they? Well, some people have said they're the work of aliens from out of space. That the aliens from out of space wanted earthlings to worship them 
And so they convinced the earthlings to create monuments in the image of the aliens. Well, that's a very common theme found in science fiction. But now we have the convergence of DNA research, the convergence of linguistics and archaeology to gradually tease apart the origin of the Polynesians. First of all, DNA analysis seems to indicate that much of the genome of the Polynesian people originally came from Taiwan, but they became masters of the sea. Now, within about 500 years, believe it or not, from around 800 AD to 1300 AD, in a span of 500 years, they were able to colonize an area, a tremendous area, from Samoa all the way out to Eastern Island and beyond. So this was a tremendous expansion that took place in a very short period of time, just 500 years. Now, how do we know this? First of all, by looking at DNA, the DNA of the Polynesians of today, and then sampling the DNA of each island to see when each island was colonized, and then looking at linguistics. Because when people go from place to place, language changes, you can then create a family tree. A family tree of when certain dialects branched off into two dialects, branched off into three to four dialects, and then create a family tree of linguistics. And then, of course, there's carbon dating, there's archaeology, looking at bones. In fact, by looking at bones, by looking at the teeth, of some of these bones, you can actually extract usable DNA, believe it or not, and from that DNA construct a genetic family tree. So it turns out that these three family trees, one by using archaeology, two by using uh, DNA analysis, and three by using linguistics, are more or less converging, and we now have a time frame, a time frame more or less century by century of island hopping. So we know at what point the islands began to be colonized. Starting in Tahiti around 800 AD, it spread through Polynesia, and it reached Easter Island and beyond by the year 1300. Now, there's several mysteries that still have not been solved. One of them is the origin of the stone statues that has captured the imagination of mystery writers and science fiction writers. First of all, stone cutting was not just in Easter Island. Stone cutting actually took place on several islands. And then, by looking at the island hopping, by looking at when certain islands were colonized and then the next and the next and the next, you can see the migration of stone-cutting technology as well. So this is rather interesting. The stone-cutting technology was taken from one group of people to the next island to the next island, where you see these stone statues, not just on one island, but on many islands. And so, in other words, these Statues probably were not images of aliens from outer space. Whatever they were, the knowledge to create these things were taken by people from island to island to island. And then we know the date, the date at which these things began to flourish. But there's several mysteries still. One mystery is, if you look at the DNA, there seems to be South American DNA mixed there. That's strange. Where did this South American DNA come from? 
Some people think that maybe it meant that the Polynesians reached South America and came backwards. Other people think, no, maybe the South Americans took a, a boat and reached the Polynesians. Well, we don't know. But it's tantalizing to consider the fact that um, the seafaring abilities of this, these people were so great that they, they could go over thousands of miles without knowing if there was anything on the other end of their journey. Seven to think about. And new results from, again, DNA research and archaeology. You take any textbook that goes to the early history of the Americas, and these textbooks say that, well, about 10,000 years ago, that's when the Ice Age melted. And so there were waves of migration from Asia and Mongolia into the New World, a land bridge through Alaska. In fact, using DNA analysis, we now know that there are at least three, maybe more, at least three different waves of migrations took place from Mongolia and Asia across the land bridge into the Americas. Well, that's what you see in the textbooks. Now we have this monkey wrench that got thrown into the mix. A few years ago in New Mexico, archaeologists noticed footprints, fossilized footprints, footprints made out of stone. And there were not just one or two, but hundreds of these footprints, footprints of children, footprints of adults, footprints of people playing in the mud. And then they tried to date how old these footprints are. By looking at some of the plant material inside these footprints, by scraping them and then analyzing them using carbon dating, scientists got the shock of their lives. They thought at first that the plant material would show that these footprints were made, you know, 5,000, maybe 10,000 years ago, toward the uh, end of the last ice age. They were shocked to find that this material was dated to 21,000 to 23,000 years ago. That is amazing. It means that the ingenuity of humans goes back even at the height of the Ice Age. It turns out that about 21,000 years ago, that was the height of the last glaciation. It was no picnic going from Mongolia into Alaska and then into the Americas, but they did it. And of course, it means that other archaeologists and paleontologists are saying, wait a minute, this is too shocking. We're going to have to rewrite our textbooks. So one main criticism is that, well, how do you date a footprint that is fossilized in the mud? Well, by looking at plant material and dating the plant material, which can be done using carbon-14 data. But what happens if there's contamination? What happens if the footprints have been contaminated by earlier debris from plants that were, let's say, 21,000 years old? Well, this debate is going to go on, but the people who found this, these footprints say that, nope, they did cross-check they did not one but several independent cross-checks. Each time, these cross-checks indicated that these things were created 21,000 to 23,000 years ago. 
Well, if that holds up, as I mentioned, we're going to have to write, rewrite a few history books that the Americas were colonized way before we thought at the height, the height of the last ice age, 21,000 years ago, meaning that they were hardy, very, very ambitious individuals trekking through the ice and snow at the height of the ice age, thereby reaching the new world. Amazing. that's it for the first part of exploration stay tuned now for the second half of exploration when we bring on dr spencer wells who will tell us about how they can trace the origin of the human race going back thousands of years going back to perhaps adam and eve or a genetic adam and eve so stay tuned now for the second half of exploration as we talk about the genetics of how we determine the human family tree going back hundreds of thousands of years into the past. Stay tuned. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. If you want to know more about my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. We have about 5 million fans on Facebook now, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything, about the final equation that one day perhaps we'll find an equation that summarizes all the physical laws of the universe in an equation one inch long. But today, let's say a few things about DNA research and the ability of DNA to retrace the family tree going back hundreds of thousands of years. How do you do that? Well, it turns out that DNA is a clock. It mutates at more or less a constant rate. Let's say, for example, that it mutates at about 1% per million years. This is just an approximate number. And if you take a look at the chimpanzees, our closest evolutionary neighbor, they are about 6% separated from us in terms of our DNA. 
And therefore, if DNA mutates at the rate of about 1% every million years, then you could show that we separated from the chimpanzees roughly 6 million years ago. Of course, we can do much finer analyses by looking at the individual genes, but that's just a ballpark estimate of how you can use DNA to estimate when two species separated from each other. Now, if you apply the same analysis to the Polynesian islands, and then you assume that the Polynesians did island hopping from island to island, you can then put in chronological order and get a rough approximation of the time it took for each settlement to go from one island to the next, to the next, to the next. And from that, we get a family tree. And then we can compare that to the linguistic family tree, because language also mutates at more or less a constant rate every thousands of years. And the archaeological evidence, and bingo, you now have a unified understanding of how the Polynesian islands were colonized. Well, with us today is Dr. Spencer Wells, working with the National Geographic, and he's going to explain how we can retrace the entire family tree of humanity, starting from migration that took place from Africa, then going from Africa into the Middle East, and then branching off, one branch going into Europe, and the other branch going into Asia, and yet an even smaller branch just kept on going past Asia, into the land bridge, into Alaska, into the Americas. And so once again, our special guest is Dr. Spencer Wells, who will tell us about the family tree of humanity. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest today. We're very delighted to have with us Spencer Wells. He's a geneticist with National Geographic, and he made headlines recently by tracing the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is handed down from father to son, and thereby looking for mutations within the Y chromosome through populations of the Earth, you can actually trace the lineage of humanity. That's right, so today we're going to talk about the origins of the human race over the past 50,000 years. So once again, our special guest today is Spencer Wells. We are talking about the Y chromosome and the ability of geneticists to recreate the family tree of humans over the last 50,000 years. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested as a youth in the whole question of biology? Well, it, it came about kind of secondarily. When I was uh, very young, kind of six, seven, eight years old, beginning to think about how I'd want to spend the rest of my life, you know, to the extent that you can at that age, uh, I was fascinated by history, by the idea of traveling back in time. I, I went to see the, the King Tut exhibit that toured the, the States in the late 70s. And I uh, was absolutely fascinated by the idea that, you know, there was a culture that existed thousands of years ago, and they made these amazing things. 
Um, so it was, you know, from a historical background that I was interested in, you know, investigating the world and all of that. And around that time, my mother actually went back to school to get her PhD in biology. And I started hanging out in the laboratory with her. And I discovered that science, um, while, you know, it is kind of odd in some ways, it's not really about, you know, secretive people speaking a special language, wearing white coats. It's really about discovering new things. It's about creating novelty. And every day is like solving a puzzle. And that is an incredible thing to be able to do. And so, you know, I, I started off with this interest in history, but it kind of morphed into a love of what you can do with science, investigating the world and discovering new things. And ultimately, by the time I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to use science as a tool for investigating the past. And that's what I've ended up doing, so I'm very lucky. And how did you get interested in the whole aspect of using genes to trace human genealogy going back thousands of years? Well, if you, you, know, if you are scientifically minded and you want to be a scientist, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of mechanistic stuff that you need to learn. You need to learn how atoms combine into molecules and organic chemistry, and you need to learn how genes are turned on and off and, and all of that stuff. But again, what I wanted to do ultimately was to use the knowledge of biology, use molecular biology as a tool to investigate the past. And so as a biologist, that means that you're studying evolution. You're studying the biological history of a species. And I did my Ph.D. work with a guy called Dick Lewinton, a very famous genetics professor at Harvard, uh, working on fruit fly evolution. And you find out if you investigate the way genes change over time, the way evolution actually occurs at a mechanistic level, that so much of evolution has to do with population history, the history of how individuals and populations have moved around and mated with each other. And that's just not inherently interesting for fruit flies, at least for me. <laughs> but it is when you, when you kind of map it onto human history and you start thinking about human migrations and human origins, and that's where I really made the switch. I started using these techniques that we had developed over many years for studying species evolution, and used them, you wanted to apply that to studying questions of human history, and, you know, where did we originate as a species? How did we move around the planet? How did we get to Tierra del Fuego and Iceland and places like that? So using the tools of genetics to study the past. Now, last year we had Professor Sykes on the radio show. Uh, he traced uh, the lineage through the female genome, uh, looking at the genes within the mitochondria of the cell. And he even dubbed certain names. Uh, Laura, for example, was mm -hmm. the woman whose children, believe it or not, or whose genes have spread to all Europeans and, and Asians. And he gave a rather graphic account of how uh, you can trace the genes through the female line. Now, you've done a lot of work on the Y chromosome. So tell us a little bit about what is the Y chromosome and why is the Y chromosome so crucial in terms of unlocking the genealogy of human evolution? Well, if, if you can trace back in time through the female line to find an Eve, it begs the question of was there an Adam around at the same time? Uh, is there a tool that you can use to study the male line of descent? And it turns out, yes, there is, and it's, it's what we call the Y chromosome. Now, sex in mammals is determined by the, the sex chromosome, and if you have mismatched sex chromosomes, an X and a Y chromosome in this case, you are a male. If you have two Xs, you're a female. So this is a chromosome which doesn't actually do very much other than to make men men. But because it is mismatched with its partner, the X chromosome, 
it doesn't go through the recombinational shuffling that occurs in most of the genome every generation, something that, that mixes up the, the genetic variation and creates new combinations, which is probably a good thing evolutionarily, which is the reason we have it. But it makes our lives very, very difficult. So for studying migration patterns, human origins, and so on, we ideally want a piece of DNA that isn't shuffled because it mixes up this variation, makes it very difficult to, to follow the order of events, if you will, going back in time. So we tend to study these non-recombining pieces of DNA, and, and Professor Sykes talked about the mitochondrial DNA tracing this female line, and we have studied the male line, the Y chromosome, which again does not recombine. It turns out that it is a fantastic tool for studying human migration patterns for lots of reasons. The main reason is human mating patterns in most indigenous groups over time um, follow a particular rule, which is that the men really determine group membership, and therefore their Y chromosomes tend to stay put. Oddly enough, in most indigenous populations, the women tend to move around more than the men. And so the signal, the genetic signal that distinguishes between populations tends to get blurred much more rapidly for the female line. That makes the Y chromosome a much better tool for studying differences between populations and therefore the migratory routes that we followed. So in trying to find this, this kind of atom lineage, it turned out that we also identified a tool which is fantastic for following migratory routes, which is what we want to be able to do, to reconstruct these journeys we've taken around the world. So if you are a man, it means you have the Y chromosome of your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, but mutations occur along if you go back far enough. And I guess by tracing the sequence of mutations, you can then trace the family tree, right? That's right. That's right. DNA is a very, very long molecule, and although our cellular machinery is very good at copying it when we have children, occasionally we make a mistake, a little spelling error, a single letter change, typically. Um, in the DNA sequence, and when those changes are passed on, they create a line of descent. If you share a change with someone, you must share an ancestor at some point in the past. And so it's these changes that have accumulated over time that we use as the tools for, for studying the past with DNA. Okay, now let's go back chronologically uh, concerning the evolution of modern humans and migration patterns. Uh, many anthropologists believe that about 100,000 years ago, you know, plus or minus tens of thousands of years, but about 100,000 years ago, modern humans who look pretty much like us, uh, you give them a haircut, a three-piece suit, and put them on a Wall Street, and they look like pretty much all the other barbarians on Wall Street. <laughs> so let's say you now trace the lineage, because at that point, an out-of-Africa thing happened. Uh, migrations took place out of Africa of modern humans. So now trace for us what happens 100,000 years ago as humans begin to leave Africa. Well, it, it really, you, you've got to... The history of migration out of Africa is actually much more complicated than that. Uh, you've got to distinguish, in this case, between anatomically modern humans, people who look pretty much like us, and people who act like us, people who are behaviorally modern. Uh, and given that our species is kind of created by our brains, we are homo sapiens, wise men, it's really the behaviorally modern humans that we're interested in. So at 100,000 years ago, you're absolutely right. There are individuals in Africa and shortly thereafter just outside of Africa in the Middle East who look pretty much like us, but they're not acting like us. They haven't gone through the change in behavior which led to something we call the Upper Paleolithic in archaeology, a change in the way we interacted with the world, the creation of art, probably fully modern language like we're speaking now, syntactic language, change in group structure, and so on. 
that's when we really became modern humans. And so that exodus didn't actually occur until around 50 to 60,000 years ago, we think, from looking at the genetic data. Now, the people who were around at 100,000 years ago, as you said, yes, they did start to leave Africa. They made it into the Middle East, in fact. But after 80,000 years ago, they retreated back into Africa or went extinct. They didn't continue to exist outside of Africa. And in fact, at those sites in the Middle East that they made these initial forays out of Africa into, they were replaced by Neanderthals. And so they're pulling back into Africa after 80,000 years ago. And it's not until after 60,000 years ago that we get the, the real onslaught of modern humans with this modern human behavior. Okay, so let's start now at 50,000 years where humans that behave like us begin to migrate and then a great diaspora begins to take place. So start to trace for us some of the markers as we trace the lineage of humans. Well, so around 50 to 60,000 years ago, there was very likely an early migration along the southern coast of Asia. We can trace a lineage defined by a marker we call M130 or RPS4YT. You can call it the coastal marker, though, if you will. And this is a very rapid migration, we believe, that, that made it to Australia virtually overnight, within a few thousand years, probably, of leaving Africa. And we can trace this the migration of these genetic lineages by looking at the DNA of people living on that route today. So people living in southern India, for instance, retain traces of these migrants who went through 50,000 years ago, an extraordinary thing, that these people, in essence, have been living in the same place for 50,000 years and haven't dispersed their genes all over the place. You can still see the, the palimpsest, a glimpse of this migratory route, which is a good thing. Because archaeologically, there's no evidence for it. Not until around 30,000, 35,000 years ago do we see modern human remains and modern human tools in southern India. And yet, we, we see modern human remains in Australia at around 50,000 years ago. So clearly, there's a disconnect there. They must have made it through India in order to reach Australia, unless they simply leapt from Africa to Australia, which, of course, is impossible. So the genetics is really giving us the clues about this very early migration along the coast. Uh, we believe there was a second migration very soon after this, maybe 45,000 years ago, which went up into the Middle East. And from there, these people actually became the ones who populated most of the Northern Hemisphere, most of Asia, Europe, and ultimately the Americas. Okay, now that migration that went north, the second migration, mm -hmm. I understand then splits. I understand part going into Asia and part going into Europe. But could you elaborate? Yeah, absolutely. These people are carrying a marker we call M89. Uh, it is, you know, a second out-of-Africa marker. They trace back to, again, a common origin in Africa. But this is a second wave of migration that, as you say, went up into the Middle East. From there, some of them went over into Europe, but not many, we think, because these, these kind of ancient lineages that would have been found in the Middle East at that time are not found at very high frequency in Europe. Oddly enough, what they chose to do was to migrate into Central Asia. Now, why did they do this? Probably because, as people who were adapted to life on the East African savannas, which is where we believe all of this very early stuff went on, the origin of modern humans and so on, these are grassland dwellers. These people would have wanted to follow the game, the food. And the grasslands lead you into Central Asia out of the Middle East. They don't lead you across Anatolia and into the Balkans. The Balkans are mountainous, forested, etc. And so probably, we believe, they, they migrated into Central Asia following the herds. And there's very good genetic evidence for this because the people who lived in Central Asia later migrated westward into Europe, eastward into East Asia, and ultimately into the Americas. Okay, so we have the second migration with the M89 marker going north, going into now Central Asia, mm -hmm. and then at that point splitting in half, more or less. 
one group then going into Europe, becoming the Europeans, mm -hmm. and the other part going into Asia, becoming the Asians. Yes. Okay, now where do the Native Americans now come into play? Well, the Native Americans come out of this Central Asian cauldron, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this bubbling cauldron of humanity which spewed out people into Europe and into Asia. Some of them migrated north into Siberia. And around 15,000 years ago or so, certainly no earlier than 20,000 years ago, based on the genetic dates we have, a few of these people went across the Bering Land Bridge, which existed at that time as a result of the last ice age. The sea levels had dropped, and so there was a land connection between Northeast Asia and the northwestern part of North America. They migrated across into Alaska and ultimately down into North America around 15,000 years ago again. Okay. Now, as I understand, uh, you can actually trace in Native American peoples not just one wave, but actually several waves of uh, early humans that uh, went uh, through Alaska into the Americas. Is that right? Yeah. That, this is the earliest wave of migration, mm -hmm. and it's the one that made it very rapidly down into South America, and it is the main wave of migration, we believe, simply because it's it's these markers, the most common ones we see in Native American populations. But there's good evidence that there was a second migration around six to 8,000 years ago along the coast, because at that time the, the Bering Land Bridge had been submerged again. The ice sheets had, had started to retreat. And so the only way that people could have gotten there is by using boats. And in fact, the distribution of the lineages that probably composed that second wave of migration are found in the western part of North America. They're not found in South America. So it's consistent. The genetic pattern is consistent with what we know about the paleoclimatology, the geology, and so on. So this second migration came across into North America, and the people settled along the coast. And then from there, it migrated somewhat inland. Now, there's a controversy going on right now concerning Kennewick Man that you're probably familiar with. We have the remnants of a very ancient um, uh, remains of an individual that seems to predate uh, many of the other, other uh, Native American uh, fossils that have been found. And uh, this person may not even resemble uh, the other Native Americans according to facial reconstructions that have been done. But the question is then, who owns these bones? Uh, do Native <laughs> Americans then, can, can they bury them as their ancestor? Or do scientists analyze them as nothing but one of several waves that came over from, from Asia? Yeah, well, Kennewick is interesting, but actually not anomalous, because all of the, the skeletons or skulls um, that I'm aware of, dating from around that time, Kennewick is actually a fairly early um, remain. It's, it dates from around 9,000 years ago. Most of the remains, the skulls that have been recovered from that time period, the kind of eight to 11,000 year ago period, look more European than today's Native Americans. And it doesn't matter where they're found. They found skulls in Brazil from that time period that also look a little bit more European. Why is this? Were they, you know, Europeans who had migrated across? No, clearly, again, you look at the genetic lineages and all Native Americans came out of Asia from Siberia. The reason they look perhaps a little bit more European, again, traces back to this, this origin in Central Asia. Remember, this is the same group of people who gave rise to the Europeans. So it's, it's probably uh, as a result of the shared ancestry with Europeans long ago in, on the steppes of Central Asia. So that begs the question, why do today's Native Americans not look like that as well? It's possible that this second wave of migration, which we believe came from further east in Asia, could have brought people who looked a little bit more East Asian or Mongoloid in appearance. And perhaps the, the mixing of these groups uh, changed the appearance of the Native Americans. It's also possible there were local events that people, you know, over time change anyway. You move into a new area, particularly if the population size is small, and your appearance will change. Your gene frequencies will change somewhat due to something we call genetic drift. 
We don't know exactly, but very clearly the people living in the Americas today, the Native Americans, trace their ancestry back to this part of, of, of Asia. And it's not that there were wandering bands of Europeans here before them. Okay, now let's talk about the Polynesians. Uh, where do the Polynesians fit into this? The Polynesians are, are quite interesting. They, uh, they ultimately trace back, and I talk about this in, in my book, uh, The Journey of Man, they ultimately trace back to an origin in Southeast Asia. Um, and they probably, their expansion into the Pacific was driven by the expansion of rice agriculture in East Asia, which increased the population pressure and people set out on voyages to find new lands to cultivate and so on. And as they migrated southward down into Indonesia and ultimately out into Melanesia around New Guinea, um, they began to take longer and longer voyages. And some of them, at some point around 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, set off into the Pacific. And you can literally trace the migration of people from island to island with these genetic markers, but they do trace back to this region of Southeast Asia. And we believe, due to the timing, that it probably was ultimately driven by this expansion, the expanding population, as a result of the development of rice agriculture. Okay. Now we also have uh, genetic mysteries that go back centuries. Uh, for example, in northern Japan, we have the Ainu people, who are extremely hairy. They're some of the hairiest Caucasians on the planet Earth, from what I understand. Uh, they don't look like the, the native Japanese, who are Asian-looking. And so where did the Ainu of northern Japan come from? Well, the first thing, the first point to, to make is that physical appearance can actually change fairly rapidly. If you, if you take the evidence at face value, we all everybody living in the world today, share an ancestry in Africa around 50,000 years ago. That's only a couple of thousand generations. That means that within the last couple of thousand generations, we have generated all of the physical diversity we see in the world today. And in fact, even on local levels, you, you find people changing their appearance today through something we call sexual selection. This was first suggested by Darwin over 100 years ago as the reason why people do look so different. You choose people to mate with on the basis of what you find attractive, and that varies according to where you are in the world. And so... You know, I read a story in uh, the, the Times of London a couple of years ago about a village in Romania where all of the women have mustaches because the men in that particular region find it very attractive. And, you know, over time, this may become a defining feature which distinguishes them from people in the surrounding area. So simply because people look different doesn't mean that they have a very different ancestry from the people living nearby. Now, in the case of the Ainu, uh, there are certain markers that are at higher frequency in the Ainu, and they do correlate with probably an earlier expansion into Japan. So perhaps these were the aboriginal inhabitants. Now, it's likely that these people came out of Asia from ultimately the Central Asian stock. So it is consistent, again, with this origin ultimately in Central Asia, the, the same one that gave rise to the Europeans. So they're the retaining, perhaps, European features. Maybe that is part of the reason they do look different from the, the rest of the Japanese. Okay, so to sum up, we had the first migration out of Africa that followed the coastline into India and in, into Australia. We had the second migration that carried the M89 marker that went into Central Asia that then split into many directions, including Europe and China and then the Americas. Were there other then, other migrations out of Africa? Um, yeah, I mean, there has been a certain amount of genetic exchange across the Sahara, but the Sahara is a pretty formidable barrier. Um, there have been back migrations into Africa from the Middle East uh, within the last 10 to 20,000 years. And, of course, there's exchange going on today. And, and as people, you know, began to sail ships, thinking about the Polynesian expansion, there was actually a, a migration of Polynesians 
westward across the Indian Ocean, settling in Madagascar a couple of thousand years ago. Um, and they speak a language which is related to the Polynesian languages, Malagasy, totally unrelated to the African languages spoken nearby. So, you know, there has been some exchange with sub-Saharan Africa, but not much because of, again, that formidable barrier, the Sahara, which has kept populations apart. And also, what was the mechanism that drove early humans out of Africa? Was it the changing climate? I mean, after all, there was an ice age going on, especially in the northern uh, and and southern latitudes. Uh, What was the reason why there were all these migrations out of Africa starting around 50,000, 60,000 years ago? Well, we we do think it it comes down to to climate change. Um, As you say, we were headed into the worst part of the last ice age, which began roughly 110,000, 120,000 years ago. But it really started to get bad after around 70,000 years ago. And, in fact, we we know from looking at other parts of the genome, not the Y chromosome, not mitochondrial DNA, but looking at the the autosomal markers, as we call them, uh, that the population size probably crashed around that time as we were going into the worst part of the last ice age. In fact, some of the most recent results uh, coming out of Mark Feldman's group at Stanford suggest that the population dropped down to a couple of thousand individuals. So we're nearly extinct at that time. We're holding on by our fingernails. What we think happened was the ones who survived, survived because they were very clever. They'd gone through what we call the great leap forward in in behavior when we became behaviorally modern. And that adaptation, if you will, that ability to survive in these harsh conditions also gave them what they needed to be able to go out and take over the world. And so once they survive, once they develop these skills, once they go through what is potentially a genetically caused change in, in brain structure, once they become smart enough, they can then go out and live in places like Siberia, where, you know, the the temperatures drop to minus 70 in the winter. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and you've been listening to Exploration. To find out more about my program, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I have about 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest bestseller is called The God Equation. The quest for a theory of everything. Good day.